0: Last time we had Oxford English Professor Robert Douglas Fairhurst on the Little Wireless Program, we were talking about the year 1851 and how it marked a turning point in the life of Charles Dickens. Now what I couldn't know then is that Robert had experienced his own turning point in October 2017 when he was told that he had multiple sclerosis. He describes that moment like being on a trapdoor when the lever is pulled. You're frozen for an instant, like Wally E. Coyote running off a cliff. Then, nothing but the sensation of rushing air. It was the beginning of a new life for Robert. He had entered a parallel reality that he refers to as the kingdom of the sick. And to navigate this new place, he returned, unsurprisingly, books, His own book, Tracing His Journey, has just been released and it's titled Metamorphosis, A Life in Pieces. Robert, welcome back. It's good to have you on the show again.
1: Very good to talk to you again, Philip.
0: Take us back to that moment in uh, 2017 when you first received your diagnosis. Most of us rehearse this in our minds for years before it happens and I know what it's like to sit while a doctor tells you that you've got a potentially fatal illness. How did you receive your bad news? Well,
1: I'd done some disaster Googling, uh, as we all do, so I'd prepared all kinds of possible narrative outcomes. But we never really expect the stories that we read to be as directly applicable to our own life uh, as it turned out this one was going to be. Um, And the reason that... I start my, my book with that sensation of falling is that in my head, as the neurologist said, you have multiple sclerosis. I felt like Alice in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, where she tumbles down the rabbit hole into a strange new world where even her own body keeps springing surprises on her. Uh, and that would become something of a model for me in the months that followed. and and And, and that's because... The question that the caterpillar asks Alice a little later, which is, who are you, he says to her, who are you, is also the question I had to ask myself repeatedly after I was diagnosed. And that's especially when falling stopped being just a metaphor. My my, my legs got weaker. I started to trip and tumble more and more often, um, beginning with a, a, a really spectacular pratfall just outside the Bodleian Library where um, my legs Refused to respond to the signals my brain was sending them. Uh, I, I tripped against a curb. I fell flat on my face. Uh, my mouth starts to fill with blood, and all I could do was kind of lie on my back with my arms and legs kind of waving in the air, like like Kafka's beetle.
0: We'll come back to Kafka's beetle in a minute, but. I remember talking to Kubler-Ross decades ago about the stages of denial when confronted with mortality. Did you go into denial at first? No,
1: not denial. And in some ways, it was easy for me to accept the diagnosis because my own symptoms were so uh, so sporadic and so minor. So it, it felt as if I was being given a bit of news I should pass on to someone else, someone who was much more ill than i was um it, it was only much later well not much later in in the in the the next few months that as the symptoms got worse i started to recognize that the diagnosis was indeed one for me you know as my legs felt as if they were filling up with concrete as my voice became increasingly hard to manage um as as words started to slip away from me when i was trying to speak um all, all these different symptoms gradually started to add up into the kind of story that ms is and it's only then that i realized that diagnosis was indeed one that was for me
0: now it's not just an ms story there are ms stories plural and we'll deal with that a little later but uh, coming back to uh, kafka's insect flattening its back waving its legs in the air He's a, a salesman, as I recall, who wakes up one morning to find himself a giant insect.
1: That's right. So this is Gregor Samsa um, in the novella uh, first written in 1915 by Kafka, who wakes up um, and, for reasons we never understand, he never understands, has been transformed into a giant insect. Um, his family are obviously surprised. They are at first supportive but then gradually they get more bored more indifferent uh more cruel and more or less abandon him and at the end of the story he dies uh, and is thrown out with a household rubbish by the maid so it's not a very encouraging model <laughs> you might think.
0: <laughs> um, did kafka have a uh an experience of profound illness that triggered this
1: I don't think so but he did always think of his body as being somehow a foreign body to him so he never really felt attached to his own his own flesh
0: well you you're um, a bit like that because you talk about it sometimes as an out of the body experience
1: yes and i suppose looking back like a lot of um, people who have gone through their own physical changes not just puberty but in my case you know i was a a, a short fat kid who then became a kind of tall, thin man very, very quickly. Um, So I suppose I'd always thought of myself as a sort of body snatcher. Um,
0: (laughs) Now, let's deal with the issue of there are two types of MS. What are they?
1: So there are two main types for people who have been freshly diagnosed, and there are other types for people who've lived with the disease for number of years. Um, The two main types for newly diagnosed patients are uh, relapsing-remitting MS, which is uh, more common. Uh, It it affects more than 80% of people, especially if you're younger and female. Um, What that means is that because MS is an autoimmune disease that attacks the central nervous system, it creates areas of inflammation in the brain and the spine, uh, and it strips the coating of myelin from the patient's nerves, um, like like electrical wiring uh, being gnawed on by by, by mice. But when you have relapsing-remitting MS, the inflammation can be brought down either through the body's own efforts or by uh, giving the patient a drug. And that means that you can go through periods of weeks, months, even years before another attack happens. My case, though, is a primary progressive MS. And what that means is that the the main damage has already been done. Uh, So there are areas of kind of lesions, dead areas of the brain and the spine, which no longer conduct information as they should through the nerves to the rest of the body. And because of that, almost any area of the body can gradually misfire and, and start to fail. Uh, It can cause anything from blindness to incontinence to problems with walking to foggy thinking and eventually to paralysis and death.
0: You've got a description that hits home to any Australian listener. You say, my body was dying like a coral reef. Now, it's fairly common, isn't it? Much more common than people might realise, and I'm talking both forms.
1: Yes, it is. So it's thought to affect, as a disease, thought to affect... um, uh, around two and a half million people worldwide. Uh, in the UK, it's around 130,000 people. But those are just um, patients who have been diagnosed. And, and as we all know, uh, with this kind of disease, it can be hard to pin it down. Um, and, and, and many people go through many, many years of being misdiagnosed before they have the MRI or the lumbar puncture and then they've realised what's wrong with them.
0: I'm surprised to learn from you that very little is known about MS, including... What cause
1: it? No, it's an invisible disease uh, in many cases uh, until it's developed so much that patients end up in a wheelchair. But it's also largely inaudible in the sense that so little has been written about it, so little is understood about it. And there are some extremely smart neurologists who are doing a lot of research at the moment to try and find out more about it. Uh, But yeah, it's... um, it's like a kind of blob of mercury. You you put your thumb on it and it just scatters in all directions.
0: Any suggestion that it might be genetic in origin?
1: So it's thought that it can be partly down to genetic inheritance. It can be partly to do with um, where you live. So um, the less exposure to sunlight you have, the further north uh, of the equator you live then the more likely it is that you'll get MS. Uh, if you're female rather than male, again your your chances are uh, uh, are increased of, of getting MS. But but nobody really knows.
0: You describe MS as being halfway between a life sentence and a death sentence. That unpredictability must be absolutely exhausting. Oh, it
1: is. It's. I think I also say it's maddeningly capricious. As a disease. And yeah, it's very, very strange because it can be something which will progress steadily uh, and predictably. It can be something which has very little effects on the individual for sometimes decades. Um, It can be something which affects some bits of your body profoundly and other bits of it not at all. Um, it, it's as unique as a set of fingerprints. Every patient, it turns out, whatever their diagnosis is going to have a slightly different prognosis.
0: I'm talking to Robert Douglas Fairhurst about his book, Metamorphosis, A Life in Pieces. Now, turning to books after the diagnosis was, well, inevitable because uh, it's something you'd been doing your whole life, wasn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And And when I was younger, Uh, Books were important to me because a book was a kind of TARDIS. Uh, It was an object that seemed much bigger on the inside than it was on the outside, (laughs) could take me anywhere and everywhere in time and space. Um, And then later, I discovered that a book could also work like a lens that refocused the world around me, that made it seem fresher and clearer. Um, And I suppose reading became increasingly important to me after I'd been diagnosed because what reading allows us to do, it seems to me at least, is it, it lets us seek out models or alternatives to our own lives. Um, not only lenses, they they become like kaleidoscopes. They twist life into into patterns that help to see the world in a different way. Um, and especially if you've been diagnosed with something like MS, what, what reading allows you to do is to work out who you are That caterpillar question again, who are you? To to work out who you are by, by slipping on someone else's skin and trying it on for size.
0: I always say that this program, which I've been doing for well over 30 years, is built with the bricks of books and so are our lives. Now, it turned out that you had the perfect guide to your illness right there on your bookshelf, but you'd never read it. It was the wonderfully entitled The Journal of a Disappointed Man tell me about it
1: so the journal of the disappointed man was first published in 1919 it was written by a young naturalist uh called bruce cummings who works at the british museum in the insects department looking at uh, lice which sounds very unglamorous uh it sounds also to, uh,
0: a bit kafka doesn't it
1: well it, it, absolutely absolutely um and Bruce Cummings published under the pseudonym of WNP Barbellion, and he chose the initials because he said that they were the names of the the biggest failures in human history: uh, Wilhelm, I Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, Nero, and Pilate. Uh, Barbellion was the name of a um, set of sweet shops uh, in in London. Um, he he wrote um, a diary about well he'd started writing a diary when he was when he was younger and it mm-hmm. dealt with the natural world and his responses to it and his ambitions and dreams of the future so like a lot of people's diaries but then as he was diagnosed in 1915 uh, with what was then called disseminated sclerosis what we we would now think of as ms it became the most extraordinary kind of love letter to life itself um, and he died just a few months after the, uh, the, the journal was published in 1919.
0: You describe him as the invisible man of English literature. Somehow the title of the book seems vaguely familiar, but not the author.
1: And I think that's why. Uh, it's because it's one of these books which we've often heard about but not read. And often its effects, which is why I call him the invisible man, the invisible man we know about through the effects that he has on his environment around him without us seeing him himself. Um, And that's true of uh, Cummings as well, that you you can see flickering echoes of him in other works by writers like Virginia Woolf, much more famous writers. But He himself has has sunk uh, into near obscurity, rather sadly.
0: But it's interesting, isn't it? There is a preface written to the book by H.G. Wells, no less, talking about a very visible man,
1: Yes. Um, and, and Wells uh, was asked to do this by the publishers. And interestingly, when the book was published, because nobody had heard of this strange chap, WNP Barbellion, um, they assumed that it must be another one of HG Wells's uh, literary jokes, that he would have written it himself uh, under, under a pseudonym, and then written a, a preface to it in his own voice. And he had to explain that, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm not clever enough or, or as good a naturalist as, as the real uh, Barbellion.
0: Robert, in other ways, literature lets you down because novels that feature characters with MS turn out to be pretty trite in most cases.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, I, I, I was looking for the kinds of models or rivals, um, templates, that I could use for myself, um, as we all do uh, when we read. and It turns out that most of the novels written about MS were sort of pot-boiling romances um, with sometimes thumping passages of sex um, in which the, the heroine, and it usually is um, a heroine, uh, is saved uh, not from her disease but um, from a kind of tedious everyday life by a romantic hero who sweeps her off her feet uh, and makes her go weak at the knees in a rather different way than I'd experienced and sometimes um, literally carries her up the aisle, none of which was going to be very helpful to me.
0: You point out that they come in sort of three categories. One, facing up to the truth. Two, when you wish upon a star. And three, it can happen to you, which is uh, the most popular.
1: Yes. Um, although all of them, I, I mean, I, I, I try and distinguish between these different groups, but all of them are like watching I don't know, a, a machine sort of inching along a battered set of tracks that you know exactly where you're going to end up. Uh, and obviously, the journey can still be you know, an interesting way of passing the time, but you're not going anywhere exciting. And, and given that Susan Sontag talks about the kingdom of the sick as a strange parallel world to the one that most people live in
0: uh, that was in that uh, ma- wonderful world. book of his illnesses metaphor that, that, that's right and and, and with ms it, it's
1: a land that has only got a few you know, hastily sketched maps a handful of rickety signposts nothing that really helps you work out where you're going actually these romantic stories aren't very good guides to the kingdom of the sick
0: just before we leave that illness as metaphor, she writes extensively on cancer as a metaphor. She writes on TB as a metaphor, but she doesn't write on MS, I think.
1: No, she doesn't. Um, and I think it's because MS has never had the same kinds of language associated with it that something like cancer has. We, we tend to talk about people fighting against cancer which is something that she gets very rightly cross about. We don't really talk about people fighting against MS. We simply think of them as succumbing to it.
0: I take your point that MS doesn't have a great body of literature in the way that uh, cancer and tuberculosis most certainly do. But another reason, of course, is that MS has been almost totally hidden for much of its history.
1: Yes, it was only really understood uh, in the middle of the 19th century when the French physician Charcot um, managed to assemble enough evidence by dissecting the patients from his uh, Paris hospital um, and sanatorium that then he could produce the body of evidence required to show that this was a distinct disease. Uh, And until then, it had just been as mysterious as a curse.
0: While you were embarking on this journey... To learn more about MS, you were grappling with symptoms which started to get worse for you fairly quickly. What happened? Well,
1: I mean, for someone who deals with words um, uh, and for many years had thought of them as my, you know, my, my playthings, um, as well as the things I try to build a career on, it was very difficult to articulate what was going on, not least because. Words themselves would slip away from me, so that it felt like being an actor in a badly dubbed film. Um, and there were moments, even when I was trying to give lectures, where I simply couldn't think at all, uh, as if my brain had been replaced by by a lump of paste. And given that my not just my career but my sense of myself had been so bound up with language, it was as if my body and myself were starting to. Uh, decouple uh, from each other.
0: Your illness, of course, didn't just affect you. When you were seriously ill, you become a burden on your partner, whom you call M, and indeed, of course, your family.
1: Yes, I I don't think burden is quite the right word. Um, Obviously, anyone who's been diagnosed with a life-changing illness or a life-ending illness knows that it is almost as hard for the people around them. Um, and the emotions that they might go through also are like those that you are going through, which could include anger and resentment, depression, self-pity. What the person I call M in the book did, which was pretty extraordinary and exemplary, was he, he took it seriously, of course, but he also realised that what I needed was for it to be put in perspective, and he it turned out down... damn funny, couldn't he? Exactly, he realised that putting things in perspective meant giving them a kind of comic squint, uh, and so he used to laugh at it, make jokes about it. He'd say things like "Thunderbirds are go" <laughs> as, as, he, as he saw me kind of lurching across the room. Um, Yeah, I mean, all of which other people might think was tasteless or um, uh, kind of uh, unhelpful, but actually I found it extraordinarily helpful because it meant that I I could be prevented from just catastrophizing and feeling sorry for myself, and I could see it as something that indeed was potentially
0: funny. Cummings' journal also helped you navigate this. He provided you with a wonderful line, the test for true love. Is whether you can endure the thought of cutting your sweetheart's toenails.
1: Yes. And of course, when I explained that to Em, um, I said it might not only be um, toenails, you know, I I might have even more, shall we say, intimate needs, given what can happen with, you know, bladder, bowel control. um, People can become uh, fully paralyzed. It can be a very, very messy as well as unpleasant disease. Um, and and he he said, it's fine, I understand. Uh, I've done my research, it, it's not a problem. Uh, and, and with that, we went on.
0: So that was face-to-face, but everyone else you told on Facebook?
1: Yes, and this might seem strange to people, the idea that, first of all, I would tell um, both friends and not very good friends and near strangers on Facebook, all give them the same message. But I decided that it would be easier for me as well as for other people if I could craft a kind of response rather than have the same conversation dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Um, and so, yes, I, I, I wrote what I'd been going through on Facebook and I explained that what I wanted people to do was nothing. In other words, I, I, I didn't want them to treat me differently. I didn't want them to stop inviting me to things. What I wanted was life to carry on uh, as normally as it could for as long as it could.
0: I like the way you describe most people's responses as being characteristically British in a good way. They uh, don't make a fuss in public, but in private, they're immensely kind.
1: And they still are. I, I mean, I'm very lucky that the, the Oxford College I teach at, which is Magdalen, uh, is full of people who, I and mean, both students and colleagues and staff, I mean, everyone who works there, Knows what the situation is, doesn't mention it, but also does what they can to make my life easier.
0: You and I share a deep fascination for J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. I've told the backstory on the program in the past. How his the death, the drowning of his uh, brother, so shocked his mother that she withdrew into herself and uh, seemed to blame the surviving child, for being alive. And uh, there's a story that Barry never attained puberty after that moment. Peter Pan is essentially about time, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. And in fact, um, there's almost a, a strange joke, isn't there, in the fact that uh, Captain Hook is being chased by a crocodile that swallowed a clock. Almost is like a, a kind of pun, a crocodile, a crocodile. Yeah. Um so, so, yes. Um, but, but what's interesting with Peter Pan is that it's a story, when it was put on stage, um, in which Peter Pan would never grow up in the story, but the play itself didn't grow up because um, the same actors were used often year after year. When the children got too old, they were replaced by other similar sort of children. The same sets were recycled. The same costumes were recycled. So it became a little model of, uh, of constancy.
0: But you started putting together a new edition of all the different versions of the story that uh, Barry had written.
1: I did. And and looking back, I wasn't quite sure why I was doing it at the time, but looking back, I can realise that what I needed was something which was um, constant and and predictable when everything else seemed to be changing. It's for the same reason that I I started rereading books like Jeeves and Worcester, because oh. there too that's a that, <laughs> that a, 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 fi- a fictional world where the clocks have stopped um, I, I
0: I still think that metaphoric crocodile with the clock ticking away inside it following poor old captain Hook around with its eyes lasciviously fastened on captain's remaining arm it's one of the great symbols
1: it is uh, and it's and it's very funny and One of the reasons I I wanted to read other things like Jeeves and Worcester was that, again, they are very funny, um, but I also wanted to read other things. I wanted to read tragedies. I wanted to read Beckett. I wanted to read other things that um, reminded... Hardy has this great line in one of his poems, uh, if way to the better there be, it exacts a full look at the worst. Um, And I wanted to read those things as well.
0: Now, as we've said, no cure for MS, but tell us about the novel treatment discovered which is totally unpronounceable yes
1: so um i'll, I'll give it a go so it, it's often shortened to a h s c t it's an autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplant um stem cells are the raw materials of life and there are different kinds of stem cell what h s c t does is well the, the normal um, analogy is that it's like uh, rebooting the, the immune system like a computer that's developed a glitch in the software and needs to be turned off and on again. Actually when you go through it it's a bit more like the computer being bashed up with a hammer and then being reassembled. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> it's a contentious well controversial approach is it not?
1: It It's certainly contested I would say um uh, and i'm not going to say anything bad about uh, neurologists because they have a tough job and they they do the best they can with the information they've got um i would say perhaps not all neurologists have enough information about the benefits of what can be seen as quite a um, extreme therapy certainly it's a frontline therapy like hsct what it does is it's um, you have your, your stem cells are removed by having your blood churned through a special machine before your blood's returned to you. And then your stem cells are frozen and it looks like a kind of bag of a sort of goo, straw reaping goo. And then you undergo a lot of uh, chemotherapy to reduce your immune system to dial it down to almost zero. So it's as if you're like, kind of like a, a baby that's just been born. So very, very vulnerable. And then your stem cells are reintroduced um, through your bloodstream. And then because they are um, naive, they are innocent, uh, they don't have the memory of the disease, the hope is that that reboots your immune system and it stops it from mistakenly attacking itself.
0: So you you put yourself through this process out of fear or out of hope?
1: I would say a a mixture of the two. Uh, Mostly hope, Um, a little bit of uh, fear as well, because... In the early days, um, sort of twenty or thirty years ago, when this was first being trialed, um, I think it was about five percent or more of patients died uh, during it, uh, which is one of the reasons why some neurologists still think that the the risks are unacceptably high. Certainly, the scientific community is is still perhaps split on on both on how effective this is, which is why there are still trials going on uh, globally, uh, and also how. Um, uh, how useful it's going to be for someone who has my kind of
0: MS. Robert, you got a taste of what COVID life would be before COVID, didn't you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, It was like a a strange confirmation of the idea that the kingdom of the sick is always separated from the kingdom of the well, um, with a border that's being patrolled to ensure there's a clear line drawn between the healthy and the unhealthy, um, I had to be put in a sterile compartment in hospital uh, because I was extremely vulnerable uh, to infection while my immune system was still so weak. I was in what was called neutropenia. Um, and I did have some company. I had some uh, visits um, from my partner, M. I I had text messages um, and emails from friends. But I also had stories, uh, stories I'd brought with me, a head full of stories and quotations. And often they would sort of pop into my mind, a bit like the debris from a shipwreck, um, whether it's Proofrock daring if he wanders to, wonders if he dares to eat a peach, which I couldn't while I was in neutropenia, uh, measuring out his life with coffee spoons, which look rather different <laughs> now, but I had to measure out my own tea uh, uh, all the time.
0: And of course, Beckett's Happy Days was relevant. I vividly remember seeing a production where Winnie begins Act 1 buried up to her waist in a mound of earth and ends Act 2 buried up to her neck.
1: And there is no Act 3. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Although Winnie also keeps herself going and keeps the play going by, um, again, remembering fragments of old stories, old songs, and ends up the play by singing a happy song uh, and saying, this has been a happy day. And, although it might well be a kind of fragile happiness in her case, she was a pretty useful model for me.
0: You cast a wide net. You even took uh, lessons in gladness from Pollyanna.
1: Pollyanna, that much misunderstood classic, (laughs) yes. Um, It's one of those books, again, that more people have read about than actually read um, these days. And, of course, um, it's so sugary, it does make your teeth hurt just to read it. But... Actually, the idea that you can do what she calls the glad game, in other words, you can find something to be pleased about or content with in any situation, isn't actually a bad model when your life is changing unrecognisably.
0: Well, you've got some cause for gladness, haven't you? Because some things are better. Your vision and some things are slightly worse. Your walking.
1: Yeah. So um, one of the difficult things with when people say to me, how are you, or, or did the treatment work, is that we're so used to medical treatment being a matter of curing people, whereas AHSCT's main task is to stop you from getting worse. And in my case, I think it has, broadly speaking, done its job. So my walking is slightly worse, but that is quite common with people with my kind of MS. But other things like my voice are stronger, my vision is clearer, um, my thinking is still, I think, as clear as, as it was before, which was my greatest fear. So I can still uh, lecture, I can still read, I can still think, I can still talk. And, and those have to be benefits.
0: Gladness is one thing, gratitude is another. And your overwhelming feeling every morning is, yes,
1: gratitude. Gratitude, not only that I'm still here and I'm still doing what I love to do, uh, but also that I do think that, and this, this is going to sound again as if I am just a modern Pollyanna, but if I have learnt to live with MS, which I have, I do think I've learnt to live a little better through it. Uh, I do think that my understanding of the world is a little sharper. Uh, my sympathy for other people is a little clearer. Uh, and I think my understanding of myself is perhaps better than it would have been without
0: going through this. Well, I feel a great sense of gratitude that you've written the book and that you've come on the program, Robert. It's been a privilege to talk to you. Robert Douglas Fairhurst, Professor of English Lit at the University of Oxford. And the book we've been talking about is Metamorphosis, A Life in Pieces, published by Penguin Random House. Thanks, Robert. Thank you so much. Listen to more great
1: stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.